Each of them would submit one, uh, one payment amount, and then the arbitrator has to choose one of those two. So in baseball arbitration, the arbitrator cannot choose a middle ground. Hello and welcome to HIMSCAST. I'm Susan Morris, Executive Editor of Healthcare Finance News. I am talking today with Gary Qualls, who is K&L Gates Healthcare Partner. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's great having you here because we're going to be talking about the No Surprises Act and getting a, a good background on that. But before we do, can you tell us about your background, please, and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a healthcare litigator, uh, as you said, with the uh, law firm of K&L Gates. I'm in the Research Triangle Park, North Carolina office, which is in the Raleigh-Durham area, for folks who don't know that. I've been a healthcare litigator for 30-plus years. Um, I'm also a certified arbitrator with the American excuse me, Health Law Association and the American Arbitration Association, and have been certified as an arbitrator for going on 10 years now. That's kind of relevant to the discussion today. Um, so um, that, and, and I will say as a full disclosure here, I tend to represent providers in the healthcare context and not payers, so that uh, a little bit of a bias there may become evident in my discussions of the No Surprises Act. Thanks for uh, for saying that so we know what your background is and where you're coming from. Sure. But I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of what's happened with the No Surprises Act over the past few months and years. It seems like there's been a lot of back and forth. Yeah. So, and, and let me start out by saying for context, um, given my litigation and arbitration experience, really what I'm going to be focused on here today in the discussion is the are the arbitration features of the No Surprises Act. There are many disclosure requirements under the No Surprises Act. I'm really not going to be talking about that. That's more the regula- uh, regulatory attorney's sure. uh, ambit. But I'm going to be focused really on the arbitration provisions and the litigation that is emanated from that. So I think it's important to take a step back and to kind of think about what is the No Surprises Act, or I may refer to it as the NSA to save some breath in this interview. Um, And so the NSA that was uh, passed in December of 2020 and made effective January 1, 2022, really has a couple of main functions. The one of which is to shield patients from uh, surprise medical bills, and we'll define that in a minute, for situations when they are surprised and they think they are going to an in-network provider and some of their services end up being provided by an out-of-network provider, meaning a provider who is not covered under their insurance. It also um, defines surprise medical bill situations as emergencies, emergency room situations, or air ambulance uh, services which are kind of per se defined as um, as surprise medical bills. So that's one of the things that the act seeks to do. Um, and in that context, the NSA seeks to essentially place the patients, um, take the patients out of the middle of any disputes mm-hmm. between the providers and the payers um, and seeks to place them in a position that they would 
otherwise be in if they were in network, if their insurer did have contracted rates with the providers, so that the out-of-pocket costs for those patients is going to be the same as it would be in network. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the, the patient focus of the NSA. And then you have another feature of the NSA. The second component of the No Surprises Act really um, seeks to set up a structure whereby the providers and the payers in any disputes that they have, that that is submitted to what's called baseball arbitration and a streamlined mechanism by which the providers and the payers can work out their disputes. And it also takes the patients out of the middle of that process. Mm-hmm. Now, the baseball arbitration that is set up under this act is essentially, baseball arbitration is a situation where uh, the two parties here, the provider and the payer, uh, each submit uh, one offer. So here it would be an amount that the payer is to pay the provider. So each of them would submit one, uh, one payment amount, and then the arbitrator has to choose one of those two. So in baseball arbitration, the arbitrator cannot choose a middle ground or cannot split the baby. So that's, that's really the only thing that is meant by baseball arbitration. So this arbitration mechanism is set up where historically, uh, in this context, you would have the providers uh, just suing the payers in court to try to seek, mm-hmm. um, to seek more payment, uh, a larger payment amount for their services. This diverts those disputes into this uh, baseball arbitration context. So essentially, to kind of summarize the the intent of the No Surprises Act, it is to kind of take the patient uh, out of the fray and to kind of put them in a position for surprise medical bills where they would otherwise be if they were in that work and their provider was in that work and had contracted rates uh, with their insurance company or their plan. And then secondly, sets up this dispute mechanism for providers and payers. Now, I will say there are also exceptions uh, to the No Surprises Act. For example, Medicare and Medicaid aren't covered under the No Surprises Mm -hmm. Act. So there are some situations. And also many states have set up No Surprises Act uh, state statutes themselves. And so those are examples of situations where the federal No Surprises Act that we're talking about here would not apply. So... Um, let me let me kind of give just a little bit more background about the statutory factors, if I could, and then uh, explain the litigation that has arisen uh, from that. Sure. So the um, the litig- most litigation over the No Surprises Act has arisen because the No Surprises Act statute initially set up these eight factors that the arbitrators were supposed to use in determining these disputes that we just talked about. Um, In the rules, the initial, uh, what were called interim final rules um, that were adopted by um, CMS and other agencies promulgating these rules, um, those rules, according to the court decisions that have been decided thus far, really went beyond the statutory intent. 
and elevated one of those factors in particular over the other factors. So just to give you an example of some of the factors that the uh, statute, the No Surprises Act said should be considered by arbitrators, it was a what's called a qualifying payment amount or the QPA, and we'll define that in a second. But in addition to the QPA, um, factors such as the level or training of experience or experience of the provider or facility, quality and outcome measures of the facility or provider, acuity and complexity of the cases involved, and examples such as teaching status, case mix, and scope of services. So there were those and other factors that the NSA, the statute set up to be considered by arbitrators, which just shows you that these are non-homogenous situations and every case is going to be a little bit different. Now, for I'd like a- to stop you there for a second, Gary, yeah. because you started talking about the QPA. It's my understanding, and I like how you compared it to baseball, because hospitals, I think, would say CMS pretty much struck out or somebody struck out with this QPA that seems to favor insurers. And isn't this what all the litigation is about? Yes, and and that is what uh, the main cases have been about, and so um, and and the air ambulance uh, uh, provisions were also the same as the factors that I mentioned before, but the statute added a couple of factors for air ambulances. So let me before we discuss the cases, let me just say one more thing about the QPA. So the QPA really as defined is supposed to be the payer's median contracted rate. And that is as of January, 2019, adjusted forward for inflation. And that's supposed to be the median rate in the following context. Uh, The payer's median rate, network rate, in-network rate for the same or similar services, same or similar facilities, same or similar specialties, and same or similar geographic um, area. Um, so given that backdrop, and as a lead into to the litigation that you asked about, um, in October of 2021, um, the interim final rules that I mentioned a moment ago were adopted by the agencies in charge of these rules. And what they did in a nutshell is they created they they created a situation where the QPA was the presumptive reimbursement amount right. to be paid. So they required the rules required the arbitrators to select the baseball amount that was offered that was closest to the QPA, and in most instances that was necessarily going to be the um, the payer's offer because it's going to be the lower amount. So. The cases that you asked about, I would start with the Texas Medical Association case, at least the first one. There have been several now. Yes. Um, mm. But the uh, the first Texas Medical Association case um, uh, was filed, and then the opinion by the federal district court in Texas that decided that uh, came down in February of 2022. And really, that was the first court decision to... Um, decide anything about these criteria and uh, whether the QPA 
was uh, properly given as much emphasis as the rules gave it. And the bottom line there was that the Texas federal court uh, struck down those portions of the interim final rule that gave this presumptive extra weight to the QPA. And the court observed several things in making, uh, making that conclusion. One was that the, the court looked at the NSA, the statute itself, and said in the statute, there's mandatory language that says the arbitrators shall look and examine each of these factors. And so the court concluded that the statute required the arbitrators to uh, make a determination in each case in, uh, by, by examining and analyzing and weighing all of those factors and all of those factors equally. The court observed and pointed out that there was nothing in the, the act itself that instructed arbitrators to weigh any one factor more than another. Um, it also observed that uh, there was nowhere in the statute that states that the QPA or, frankly, any other factor was a primary. And there was nothing in the statute that gave any factor, the QPA or otherwise, a rebuttable presumption in its favor. So what the court did there was it struck out and invalidated the portions of the interim final rule um, that gave preference to the QPA. And, and but really only those portions of the rule were invalidated. But then Texas again sued. And because we only have a couple of minutes left, mm -hmm. Gary, and we can't get into every case. Sure. I wanted to ask you about the bottom line, because right yeah. now we've got CMS has said the number of disputes is so far beyond what it expected. Well, these cases are in disputed arbitration. Providers aren't getting paid. And I'm wondering, between whatever open cases are left, do you see providers getting satisfaction under the law? Um, I think it's going to depend. That's a great question. And I think it's going to depend on a few things. There are uh, there's another case, as you pointed out, uh, pending by the Texas Medical Association. And one of the things that they said in a nutshell was that the final rules which uh, were adjusted to take into account the first court decision that we discussed, still give an unfair presumption in favor of the QPA. So they're still weighting the QPA too heavily. They essentially said, although they didn't use the word a presumption, they created a presumption by the way the regulations were worded. So I do think, Susan, in response to your question, I think that in order for the provider's concerns to be completely remedied, I think uh, there there's going to need to be a few more court decisions which require the agencies to go back to the drawing board and refine the rules to make them closer hue to the statutory language. Um, because unless and until that occurs, uh, the providers are going to maintain, and I would agree with them, that there's still just too much presumption in favor of the QPA and it's elevated in its status over the other factors and criteria, which the statute, frankly, did not do. Right. Are we awaiting the outcome of a particular case? Is there one case where providers are waiting to see what the courts will say? 
I think probably the most important, uh, there's two important cases to, to watch, I think, generally speaking, and, that's, and both of which are the Texas Medical Association. Uh, one of which um, I just mentioned, which was brought uh, a number of months back, um, sought to uh, invalidate the new rule saying the presumption still applied. That one uh, should be followed to determine whether or not the agencies are going to have to rewrite the rule, the final rule, so as to comport more with the statute. Secondly, though, a, about a month and a half ago, I think on November 30th, the Texas Medical Association also filed another lawsuit, which was slightly different. And what it did was it said that the um, some of the earlier rules, um, which were promulgated, which had defined how the QPA was to be calculated uh, unfairly added again to the statute in a way that would diminish unfairly the QPA. So they're also attacking the fundamental methodology which generates the QPA and said, and, and their allegation is that is skewed and it skews that number downward in a fashion that is inconsistent with the statute. I think those are probably the two uh, most prominent cases to watch to see what, what the outcome is going to be in terms of how arbitrators are going to apply these standards and these criteria under the statute and the rules. Gary, thank you so much for explaining that so well and giving us that overview. To me, it's a very complicated situation because Every time we seem to have a, a solution, there's another lawsuit. And um, as you said, it, perhaps we should expect more until providers come to a to to something they like. Is that what you see I, in the future? I, I, I think it's going to continue to play out. I think we're going to see it on two on multiple fronts. Uh, one of which is the front that I discussed, the more macro front, where. Uh, challengers such as the Texas Medical Association are challenging the very structure of the rules and the way that those are to be interpreted by the arbitrators. And then there's a second kind of uh, there's a second set of cases, I would call it, that are starting to be filed and are becoming uh, more ubiquitous um, over the past few months. And those are challenges individually. Um, to arbitrators' decisions. And I think we're going to see, uh, depending on how those play out, we're going to see the extent to which some of these arbitrator decisions individually are going to be able to be challenged because typically arbitration decisions uh, tend to be final and there are very limited circumstances under which under the Federal Arbitration Act, there, there are very few situations in which a court can reverse an arbitrator's decision. But uh, those cases are kind of bringing those challenges under this act. So I think that's going to tell us a lot about uh, the extent to which some of these decisions are going to be able to be uh, reversed. And I would mention that some of those challenges also involve idiosyncratic situations in which the allegations are that the particular arbitrator uh, still uh, gave too much credence to the, the QPA and still gave too much presumptive authority uh, to the QPA, notwithstanding the rule revisions. Okay. 
Gary, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on Hymns Cast. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs>